Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey. This podcast is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism and how to celebrate cultural differences. This season, we're focusing on the stories of parents across the state of Minnesota. Over the last few months, I've been talking with people about their parenting journeys and how they're navigating conversations about race and racism with the young children in their lives. When my son questions me about like color and race and differences, as a mother, like I question myself. And he said, I want to play tennis, but I want to play with tennis with kids that look like me. And that actually stopped me in my track. And I was like, okay, mommy will have to do some research. The question that every parent has, right? Am I doing a good job, right? <laughs> Is this going to work? Is this working? Ayan Omar lives in St. Cloud, Minnesota, with her husband and two young daughters. Ayan describes herself as a Somali-American refugee. She was raised in a predominantly Black community outside of Atlanta and first came to Minnesota as a college student at St. Cloud State. When she got married, Ayan and her husband, who is white, knew they would face challenges as an interracial and interfaith couple, and they did their best to stay a step ahead. Still, Ayan says she's been caught off guard by some of the questions her daughters have asked or situations they've experienced at school. So tell me a little bit about your family. You do have two children, I understand. And how old are they? I have a nine-year-old, nine and a half, she'll tell you. And I have a four and a half-year-old almost. Uh, two girls. And do you mind sharing their names? Absolutely. Sophia is my fourth grader and Nora is my four and a half year old. So tell me a little bit about where you live and how your family identifies racially and maybe a little bit about as you were growing up, if you ever had an adult talk to you about race. Yeah. So I live in St. Cloud, Minnesota, central Minnesota. And my daughters are biracial, bicultural. I'm Somali American refugee, Somali Muslim American refugee. And my husband is a German Irish background descendant. So my girls have the complexity of the multi layered, uh, both racially and culturally. Mm-hmm. And growing up, I grew up in a household of Somalis. My uncles, my aunts were all Somali, Ethiopian uh, Mm -hmm. every once in a while, but primarily or predominantly East African. And I grew up in a predominantly Black community in Clarkston, Georgia. My teachers were almost all Black. The community was Black, so 
when we moved here as refugees, I closely identified with the Black narrative through writings from Alice Walker, Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou, mm. uh, that yeah. constant struggle of the Black woman narrative I found in those books, and I closely identified mm-hmm. with it. But down in Georgia, I was in the sea of Black people, so race wasn't in in our conversation, it was just a way of being, a way of existing in that community. Uh, the only barrier I had down in Clarkston, Georgia, was a language barrier. So finding ways to learn the English mm-hmm. language was the only thing that stood me out from my peers. But after exiting EL English learner classes, I was just another young Black woman in a community of Black people. Um, so mm. my parents, my black parents never had a conversation that pertains to race or being different racially. However, when I moved to St. Cloud, Minnesota to attend St. Cloud State for its education program, I stood out. So th- it was then that yeah. my multi-layered uh, identity of being a Somali, a Muslim, and a black woman became just visible compared to what I grew up with. So with my daughters, uh, that biracial complexity in the environment of central Minnesota, it comes up and I feel a constant need to be one step ahead of the conversation Mm. by asking questions. Um, She has peers that look like her, also biracial. Um, but she's coming back asking questions. Mom, am I Muslim or am I Somali? Because she doesn't speak Somali and her religion isn't as visible as it is for her peers who wear the hijab. So that constant validation, that constant negotiation for her as a fourth grader is becoming more reoccurring than when she was younger. You said that you like to try to stay one step ahead of the conversation with your children. What does that mean to you? And what are some of the ways that you do that, stay one step ahead of that conversation? What it looks like is outlining scenarios with my kid, different scenarios and different ways to respond, really giving her a backpack full of responses of different scenarios that I feel she might acquire or inquire. For example, how come you don't wear the hijab? Or how are you half black because you have beautiful, luscious curls, right? Mm -hmm. How to respond to those. So whenever it comes up, mom, am I half Somali? I capitalize on those opportunities Just feeding off of that question, uncovering a lot more questions about her identity as a Muslim, um, having a refugee mom, um, her as a Somali, her as a Black woman, um, Blackness in in our community, not even in a larger scale, keeping it local and immediate for her, conversations or inquiries that might come from her peers, inquiries that might come from adults. You, you named some really kind of heavy scenarios there. Um, so in this scenario where she says, where you talk about 
Why don't I wear the hijab or am I half Somali? What are the answers? Like, what is the language that you say you'd like to give her a backpack of responses? What what goes in her backpack to help her answer those questions? Well, first, what I try to do is validate what it means to be human. So I always tell my child, I say, honey, people just don't know what they don't know. And you as a human are full of stories. It's not that they're coming from a place of malice, but rather they are genuinely interested in learning more about you. So getting her to control the narrative rather than someone else controlling the narrative. So her perception is most valuable to me. So I try to get her to see the question for what it is and not the energy or the person it's coming from. I think that is so powerful because so often young children, when they get questions like that, or they get different kinds of feedback around race, um, culture, religion, they internalize it as there's something wrong with me. Yes. And what you're doing is giving your daughter tools to say, hey, there is absolutely nothing wrong with you. It's just a question because somebody doesn't know. And they're being curious. Yeah, yes. I, I love that. It's a source of empowerment because not only is she a biracial kid, which is different, she's also a young woman, which is different, mm-hmm. right? The the barriers and people's natural interest in my daughter won't go away, right? No, Because right. she's so multifaceted, multi-layered. And people should want to get to know my daughter. She's a wonderful human being, right? So I try to empower her by really staying true to herself and controlling her perceptions of other people and not perceiving it as if, as you said, something isn't right. I'm different. I don't want her to perceive Mm -hmm. herself as different. I want her to perceive her as a benefit, an asset that Mm. she can bring to any conversation. Um, So that's the first thing I do. You'll have questions. That's natural. Every human has questions about other humans. We're social beings. We want to get to know each other. I start there. But in the circumstance of how come you don't cover your hair, I try to acknowledge that religion, as it is practiced, is a way of putting people in boxes. And right now, by not covering your hair, you don't fit into that box. So Mm. that question is less about why are you doing something you're not supposed to be doing? But they're mm-hmm. trying to figure out in their stereotypical notion, especially children, right? Children only yeah. believe what they yeah. see. And I try to tell her your peers at fourth grade, they only believe what they see. They have no knowledge outside of that. Only they the, don't. The, right. Only their home life is what's their truth. So your mm-hmm. job is to open their eyes and say, I am a Muslim. And I choose not to cover my hair because I believe in modesty. Modesty is being this, this, and that. Service to others, kindness, respect. So we try to broaden it. So I put her at fourth grade in a leadership position, in a a teacher position. And it's my way of really empowering her to see herself as such. That's wonderful. That's, That's actually very beautiful. Yeah. In today's episode, I am speaking with Ayan Omar, who lives in St. Cloud, Minnesota with her husband and two young daughters. Ayan describes herself as a Somali-American refugee, and she shares her experiences as an interracial and interfaith couple with her husband, who is white. 
Ayan talks about her daughters, who are biracial and bicultural, and the challenges they face in navigating their complex identities in the predominantly white community of central Minnesota. Ayan will delve deeper into the specific scenarios her daughters face and the language she uses to empower them to be proud of who they are. Let's get back to this important conversation. So you are, um, as you said, you identify your family as being biracial, uh, multicultural, multilingual. So there's a lot of layers to your family. And so how do you and your husband talk to your children about race, about the different racial backgrounds that they come from? And has there ever been a time when you all may have struggled with wanting to know what the right answer was? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, So my husband and I intentionally went into this marriage knowing that there's going to be such moments where we'd have to unpack race Mm -hmm. and center race. Um, I remember when Sophia was about three, I was giving her a bath and she started to wash my hand. And I asked her, honey, what's going on? She said, "I I want to wash the brown off of you so you could look like daddy and I. Mm. And now keep in mind, we've been intentional. We've, we did everything by the book. I'm, I'm an equity director. I'm a teacher. Mm-hmm. So even with the intentionality of approaching our child with more broad vision, it still came up. Yeah. And I knew it was going to come up. I just didn't know it would come up at, at three, right? It's, right. it's like, right. whoa. So I remember stepping out the bathroom, getting my husband and Telling him, I don't know what, I I can't indoctrinate a three-year-old with race conversations. (laughs) (laughs) And and for a long time, she would describe her dad as sparkly pink. Mm. And she was pink and I was brown. Mm. I'm like, why is he sparkly pink? There's nothing sparkly about him, right? That's Uh, a good question. Yeah, why was he sparkly? You weren't. (laughs) That added layer of... He's sparkly pink. And I and I left the bathroom and I went to my husband and we went into the bathroom with a conversation of Brown, uh, who mom is. Uh, mom identifies as uh, black and dad identifies as white. And it's because our family being from East Africa, Ayeyo, which is grandma in Somali, grandma. Mm-hmm. And we are a product of two loving families and with those loving families, we decided to get married and have her. And she's a product of both of us. And it's not something you can wash off. Um, and what we do is we have books around the house. Again, it goes back to that intentionality, reminding her that everyone's beautiful. And it's not what you perceive on the outside. It's truly what's on the inside. And she has to be able to ask enough questions in life. But, oh my gosh, we said it at a much more <laughs> three-year-old level, four-year-old. Yes, um, right. But it shocked you that she said that at three. At three. I just couldn't believe it. What, what was your, going through your mind at that time, at that moment, with the fact that she was three? It's shocking because as an educated woman, I knew 
through reading. I'm a literature teacher. I've studied Paul Dunbar. I've started, studied Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin. I mean, I have a master's degree in Toni Morrison's work. I've always mm. understood the historical context of Blackness in this country. And even as a Somali refugee, I've embodied that. I've internalized it. Yeah. It became mine. To hear my three-year-old perceive it as something needing to get washed off was hurtful. Mm. Yeah. Because it was nothing that she found in our house, right? It was nothing yep. that we could have in, indirectly passed on to her. Mm-hmm. We've controlled mm-hmm. the circle. It mm-hmm. was her own perception, right? Her dad is sparkly. He has that added layer of funness or whatever, however she defied sparkling at the time. And I was just mom, right? It's <laughs> That's actually a very powerful story because so one of the things I like to do on this podcast is dispel myths about talking to young children about race. And one of the myths is that children uh, can be too young to talk about it because they don't see color. And this story that you're saying is is very powerful because, number one, it shows that she very clearly saw color and she very clearly put a value to your skin color as opposed to her father's skin color. And even though you all did everything right, um, the language probably that you use in your house was good and affirming. There's something in our collective culture, our collective society, that gave her those thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the um, podcasts that I did, I interviewed Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, and she calls it the smog that we all breathe. And if we all live in a smoggy place, we can't help but to breathe the smog. And so I think that story is just a perfect example of how that happens. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we've even controlled the Disney characters we highlight in our house, mm-hmm. right? But when they say you're a product of the environment that you're in, it's it's true. Because even as parents, there's so much you can control. And naturally, so kids see and feel. They feel, yes. And it's that yes. feeling piece. And it put me in in a in a point of reflection right and this is me as a mom trying to find out what in my behavior did not allow me to earn that sparkle that's that layer of so why can i be sparkling brown right <laughs> right it's like kids feel and mm-hmm. i i had to reflect and um it definitely woke me in the, in its purest sense of the word woke me into the work that's going to require in raising biracial kids, not even focusing on the outside, focusing on the inside, right? So much of it we perceive comes from the outside world, but it was happening right there in my own house in a protected, loving home that we've, I thought I built for my kids. Yes. And, and, and your home is probably just that it is protective and, and loving. And yet, it is placed within our society yet. And so there's just some things we think we can protect and get away from. And this is one that, that, that we can't get away from. But what we can do 
is do what you're doing with your child, and that is to give language to it and to talk about it, expose it so that your children can have conversations about it. They can then go to their friends, um, the people that they play with, or even, you know, other adults, maybe their teachers who may be less informed, and have a conversation with them um, about who they are and, and know who they are and not internalize those images and those thoughts that other people might have about who they are. Oh, absolutely. It's just working from the inside out then rather than the outside in has really been my approach, finding different ways to empower my kids. Um, one of the phrases Sophia and I have since she was a kindergarten, every time I drop her off at school is don't look for a friend, be a friend right? Mm. Don't look for someone. You want to become that someone. Focus on you more than what's on the outside. So, But that language piece is so important. If parents are uncomfortable, the kids will be uncomfortable, right? Because they're such feelers. So we, we have some conversations at the house pertaining to this topic and who they are and how the world may perceive them, but how to respond in a way that shows a a confidence, authenticity. You can only be who you are. There's no one else in this world that you can be like but you. Yes, yes. Oh, I love that. So tell me, what are some of the resources that you like? Like, what are some of your favorite um, books or toys or or shows even that you like to expose your children to that kind of help you with this conversation with them? Um, So at the house, we, we bought this big old carpet that's a picture of the the world a map of the world Mm, it's a globe mm -hmm. and what we do is we get together I remember when Sophia was much younger more so with Nora now and we step on a country and we say okay let's let's learn about this country what language do they speak and the reason that carpet that rug is so important to us is because I need my kids to see how big this world is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. We are so small in central Minnesota compared to the rest of the world. Yes. Um, so that's one activity that we absolutely love. We I explore love different languages, different cultures, that being a young biracial Somali, German, Irish kid in central Minnesota is not all there is to the world. Right keeping it as wide, as big as possible for them so that they never feel like it's all about me, like decentering their story as much as I can so they can always learn to think big is one thing that we like to do. Um, Some of the books that we read with Sophia, we finished a graphic novel and it's a book about refugee camp, When Stars Are Scattered. It follows the life of young Omar and his brother who live in a refugee camp. And it's so much of my narrative growing up in a refugee camp. And it allows me to have conversations with Sophia about what life is like waiting on someone to pick up your ticket, mm, right? Yeah. And and that waiting period and how much family and neighbor and, and communal collective mindset is hope in itself. That's that's the book that Sophia and I just finished, uh, and she loved it. And she was able to have questions about 
where I'm from and about my Somali heritage. Oh, wonderful. So I look for books that are conversation starters with my kids. I'll have to look that one up, definitely. Um, as, As we close, is there any question that you might have, like, that you as as you're thinking about how you talk to your young children what you expose them to is there something that you're like ah oh, I just don't know quite how to do that yeah it's the question that every parent has right am i doing a good job <laughs> right <laughs> that's that's the it's like is this right. is this going to work is this working but it, there's no right answer to how to parent uh it just has to come from a really good place every parent has that complexity that layered it's just when you have biracial kids who come from bicultural you just have a lot more homework to do mm. than, than other parents who are within their own culture and their own race just Finding ways to empower your kids is all you could do. Give them language, give them opportunities in the space to start conversations. Don't impose uh, and don't expose, but rather set up the space where it's a natural, comfortable way to have the conversations. I love that. And from all accounts, it sounds like you are doing an excellent job (laughs) with your two girls. (laughs) Yes, thank you, Ayan. This was excellent. Thank you. Minnesota is home to many interracial families. And so Ayan Omar's story offers a powerful perspective for parents navigating the challenges of raising biracial children in an interfaith family. Ayan's emphasis on validating her daughter's humanity and equipping them with tools to navigate inquiries about their race, religion, and culture and encouraging them to talk openly will ultimately give her daughters the tools they need to engage others in conversations about race as they grow older. Ion's story serves as an inspiration and a reminder for parents to proactively dialogue with their children about race, culture, and identity, and to support them in navigating the complexities of their diverse heritage with confidence, resilience, and self-love. Early Risers is hosted by me, Diane Halsey. Our executive producer is Andrea Bork. Our senior producer is Nancy Rosenbaum. Our producer is Twyla Dane. Katie DeSell is our social media manager. Kaviesh Kavaraj composed our theme song, I Still Remember. As always, a special thanks to the whole team at Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thank you for listening. You can keep up with us on social media. We're at Podcast Early on Instagram and Facebook. Now is also a good time to go back and listen to our archive of past episodes and check out our discussion guides. Look for links at npr.org backslash early risers. And for more tips and resources on how to talk with young children about race and racism, visit littlemomentscount.org.